Welcome everyone to the Spectrum of Health podcast. I'm Dr. Christine Schaffner, and today I am sharing the Q&A that I did with Beth O'Hara and Dr. Tom Moorcroft. We just are in the process of wrapping and going to be announcing the Encore Weekend for the Reversing Mast Cell Activation and Histamine Intolerance Summit with a lively Q&A, and I thought that this information it would be so helpful for the audience. And I hope that you find it informative and that this is a wonderful resource. Beth put so much thought and intention into this summit that I am just so excited for you to experience and share this knowledge. So I hope you enjoy this podcast. Sign up for the Encore Weekend if you haven't joined the summit already. And I hope you have a beautiful day. Hi, everybody. Welcome back. And this is our Q&A number two for the Reversing Mast Cell Activation and Histamine Intolerance Summit. So excited to be with you today. And we have Dr. Tom Moorcroft and Dr. Christine Schaffner, our co-hosts for the summit, who are going to join us also to help answer your questions. And what we're doing is answering questions about the summit talks that came up for you. And we'll get to as many as we can. Obviously, we won't make it through all of them in the time that we have, but we're going to do the best job that we can for you today. If you are um, finding this, as a surprise and you haven't seen the summit yet, you can still get the last day of the summit here at masscell360.com slash reverse. So that's our reversing mass cell activation summit and the recordings are gonna be available for a few more days. So if you wanted to get the recordings, those are still there for you. I wanna introduce us as the coasts and then thank the people that, that really worked hard to make this happen. Some people who are joining us may not know me. I'm Beth O'Hara. I'm the founder of Mass Cell 360, a functional naturopathic consultant. And then, Christine, um, you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, absolutely. And I'm just so honored to be um, in this group with both of you to deliver such inspiring and important information. I'm a naturopathic doctor. I've been practicing almost 13 years, and I see a lot of chronic illness. I live in Seattle, Washington. I have a brick and mortar practice and also do telemedicine. And uh, this was such a, again, inspiring event to be part of. So thank you. We're so glad you joined us. And Tom, for people who don't know you, tell them a little bit about you. Yeah. Uh, again, like I would love to echo what uh, Dr. Christine just said. It's such an honor to be here serving everyone like this and to be able to do this project with the two of you. It's just been so amazing. Um, I'm Dr. Tom Moorcroft. I'm a, a board certified osteopathic physician. And, you know, I've been focusing on the treatment of Lyme disease, other born co infections, and mold illness for about 15 years now which really has brought me to under, an understanding of the need to know more about and, and treat mast cell activation syndrome. And so, you know, it's just been, again, such an honor. And it's just, it's so nice to be able to talk with everyone and, and provide a, a ray of hope. Because I know in our, all of our stories, we've all gone through personal health journeys. And for me, it was about 13 years from beginning to end with Lyme, Babesia, and heavy metals and all the fun stuff that comes along with that. And for us to be able to minimize suffering for other people and to help them get a hold of the information that I didn't have, you know, for at least eight or 10 years of my journey, I just think about how life could have been different. So, you know, just really happy and to be able to dedicate my professional life to sharing this information with all of you. I'm really grateful you both joined me to put the summit on. And I also want to thank, there were so many people that made this possible, but I want to thank our team who worked really hard. I know that um, Dr. Tom's team and Dr. Christine's team worked really hard for this summit and the, all the team members of Dr. Talks. And I want to thank our sponsors because without them, we couldn't have made this production possible. And our sponsors include Otto's cassava flour. So if you have not tried their cassava, but you've tried others, they're worth definitely worth a try. They're the only non-fermented cassava flour. And a lot of people have tolerated that really well. And it gives you a great baking option that's low histamine and low lectin. Medium oxalate if you don't eat three or four muffins like I like to. <laughs> one muffin. <laughs> and then um, White Oak Pester is one of our sponsors, and they have an incredible selection of unaged beef and other low histamine meats frozen after slaughter. 
I want to really thank our, our main sponsor, Econugenics, and other major sponsors, Functional Genomic Analysis, Purity Coffee, which is a low histamine, mold-free, organic coffee, incredible coffee, high antioxidant, sunlight and saunas, and biobalanced mold remediation products. So thank you, all of you, for helping make this possible. We have a little special treat here before we hop in. A client of ours who wanted to share her story is joining us. And Kristen is coming on to because we know how lonely it feels when you're the only person you know who's super sensitive or who is as sick as you are, all of that. And it's hard to see the light at the end of the tunnel or that healing's possible. We just want to take a little moment to have this encouragement and inspiration. You've come such a long way, Kristen. Can you share with people where you were two years ago? Yeah, thank you for having me. Um, yeah, I would say two years ago was definitely a low point in my life. I had been having some health issues, going to doctor after doctor. Um, no one seemed to be able to understand or even really believe what was happening because the symptoms were sort of migrating into different areas. I knew something wasn't right, but I couldn't quite figure out what it was. And so I started with trying to just look and find and seek different things out. Um, but I came to a point where my body finally just shut off and I ended up having a complete break where my systems couldn't handle anything more than one food. And so for over six months, all I ate was oatmeal. It was the only food I could eat. I dropped 30 pounds and was just in a complete state of where my systems just shut down. Um, and so I started looking for answers and trying to figure out what was happening and why and how to heal myself. And in, in the state of having such um, where if you think about where your body doesn't have the nutrients it needs, your brain isn't functioning the way it should, your um, nutrients aren't what they should be. And so um, just sort of that waterfall effect starts to happen where you start tumbling down. You know, I think about rolling down a mountain and you can't stop. And so I found uh, Beth. Uh, through my searching, because even when I went to doctors, they were like, we can put you on a feeding tube, but that's about all that we can do. Um, and so I found uh, Beth online and um, I was, I, I think I wrote the team, you know, four or five times just saying like, what resources, you know, and, and they, the website was such a huge help to me to start to really stabilize my system. And then I was able to start working one-on-one -on -one with, Beth, with Beth. And the thing that I love the most is that in this time, she has really targeted and helped me to see um, how through looking at the insides and trying to stabilize um, nervous systems and um, emotional stability and things like that, that that really does have such a huge impact on rather than just treating the direct symptoms. And it really looking from the inside out has completely changed. Um, so meeting regularly um, and now I can happily say I'm up to 70 foods, um, which is amazing. The other main thing for me, and I don't know where each of you are in this, but it was such a sacrifice. I'm a mom. I have three kids. I have a husband who travels 80% of the, the time. And so stress is a part of my life. But also being a mom and the things that I enjoyed was such a, a huge part. And I didn't want to lose that. And so... Beth was super helpful in allowing me to see these short-term goals where we could work towards something, whether it be taking a day trip with my kids or finding a way where I could go to all their baseball games and still have a way to like survive and have the energy to do that. Um, and so it was the small steps. And then we kind of went to the bigger steps of taking an overnight trip, what that might look like, how that might look. And now this past summer, I just did a two-week trip to Hawaii with my family. We were able to do all the things. And so just the joy of really being able to live life again. And yes, there are things that we're still working towards. We have our next set of goals of what things might look like, but it's really given this beautiful way for me to be able to, um, to live again. So it's been beautiful. I'm so happy for you and you worked really hard for this. Mm, thank any, you. Any last words of wisdom you want to share to people who were where you were two years ago? What I would say is, try to focus on ways on the small wins. So try to find ways that you can have 
hope or gratitude for today. Even though everything might look like it's crumbling around you, there usually is something that you can find that could be, you know, I remember back in the day, I would literally write down three things that I could try to be thankful for. And even though it was like, I was able to get out of my bed today, or I was able to sit and meditate for five minutes and not cry, right? Or, um, or I was able to walk down the street with my, with my kids and not feel like my muscles were going to give out. And so focus on the small wins. Um, and also know that if you keep fighting against yourself, like this isn't working or I'm not going to find anything and lose that hope, it's actually going to work against you. So know that there is hope for, for recovery, for healing, for progress. And rather than focusing on the end of like, I want my old life back, focus on, okay, what can I have next week? What can I work towards next month? And keep on focusing that. And if you kind of just move the ruler, you know, a little bit each time, it will really help to kind of restore that hope of, of healing um, rather than fighting against yourself of, of what you, you know, what you don't have. Although there is a place for grieving as well, you know, what's not there. So I think having a healthy balance of those is important. That's beautiful. Thank you so much for taking time out of your busy day to be with us. No, thank you for having me. I, I hope that it, that everybody who's watching is able to to just walk away feeling, knowing that they're not alone and that I can tell you that although I'm still on the journey, I'm on the other side of the worst of it. And, and I hope that for each of you too. So I'm going to pop you to the background here. Thank you again. It was just really, I wish when I was so sick, we had these kind of messages and I'm so grateful for you, Kristen. Oh, thank you. We've got a lot of new people on here. So if it's your first time being here with our Facebook page, we have this wonderful community of people like Kristen and lots of support. So all you have to do to join this community is hit the like or follow button um, on our Facebook page. And you can, we do uh, Facebook Lives most Mondays. And I know Dr. Christine and Dr. Tom, you both see incredible transformations like this every day. And we have a lot of questions about whether you're taking new patients. Can you let people know? Tom, do you want to start? We do telemedicine and in person. So it just, uh, we do have room for some new patients at the moment, although the, the list is getting pretty long. And we have a few new providers that we have been training with me for a year and a half now who are potentially interested in joining us. So stay tuned um, because we may have much more availability very soon because there's so much need out there. And I, I'm still seeing new patients. And we just have to plan ahead. I also work with a team, and none of us can do this alone. And I'm so grateful that I have a few physicians that also uh, are trained in the methodologies that I have trained them in, and they've done a lot of their own training. And uh, something I think that's unique to all of us who are here today is that we don't do cookbook medicine. We really individualize um, for our patients, and I have a brick and mortar, like I mentioned, I'm in Seattle, Washington, but I can um, do telemedicine with my naturopathic license, depending on what state you are a resident of. So mm -hmm. you can contact my office, um, and that's imminenthealth.com, and we're happy to find a solution for you or somebody in your community, since we all know many people. That's a small but mighty community of us doing this work, and we try to, if we can't serve you, we try to connect you with somebody. Um, let's get to some questions here because I know this is what people are excited about, what they're looking for. Let's start with this one. Um, in Ashok Gupta's presentation, he talked about training the limbic system to ignore or extinguish pain signals instead of the result of overactivity of the mast cells and nervous system. And then the question goes on to say, but what about for people like those with EDS who have pain from mast cell and nervous system overactivity, but who also have actual tissue-based pain they need to pay attention to as a signal to when they're harming their connective tissue. How can those people make sure they don't miss these important pain signals if they're doing the Gupta program? Yeah, I think it's a really great question. And, and if you want to look ahead too, there's another one. I think maybe we can dovetail into it it's like three down or four down and maybe even get Christine's input on this as well. But I think a couple things. And one is, you know, the this pain like what happens in the body is a mechanical change that we call nociception it's a noxious stimulus pain is actually processed in the brain and my experience and so that's a double-edged sword in that the pain that we're experiencing within the brain we can then kind of 
have this human propensity to say, well, I'm not supposed to have that pain. And then that creates additional pain, which most of us would label as suffering. And so it's unlike my dog that gets hurt and then just kind of like, all right, I'm hurt. And then just kind of goes and lays down and deals with it and then lets it be. So I think one of the things is when you have a mechanical uh, pain, you're not going to be able to, like if you're able to fully override it with your brain, then it's not mechanical pain, right? There's, there's this balance because you're going to continually having that input. But what I find is that people who are doing the work like DNRS or Gupta, or I know Christine and myself both have, and, and you Beth have our own approaches to the mind body or the mind piece. Of this is that when we have our, our brains kind of, and our nervous system, our emotions as calm as they can be, we're going to get a more objective viewpoint of what our actual physical symptoms are versus what are maybe mental, emotional symptoms that are interrelated. It's just kind of like if I'm having it, if I wake up and I get all these text messages and, or I have a, you know, or somebody's calling me, something didn't go right. Someone had a, you know, a, a big flare and they were kind of like a little bit, maybe belligerent in my, my direction. I'll find that like maybe the uh, for part of my morning, I might be a little headachey or a little brain foggy just because I'm processing that emotion. But once I process the emotion, then I just go back down to my baseline. So I think it's a give and a take in both directions. But I've not seen anybody who can completely alleviate pain to the point where they're missing like the truth. It's just like a lot of the medicines we take. You can't completely wipe out a real symptom. Like you can't overly mask it. I mean, you have to try really hard and you probably have to be in the critical care unit at the hospital. And then like the, the other question that dovetails with this is like, you know, I'm curious why DNRS and Gupta cause anxiety in some people and what would be the best alternative modality to do limbic retraining. And one of the things I think is important and, and thankfully they bring up the develop that the goal is to develop a sense of safety. I, I love the word safety and we talk about it a lot. And my question though is more like, I don't understand safety. I mean, I get it from a definition, but one of the things about safety for me is familiarity is another word you can use because our nervous systems and our emotional system get um, become very familiar with the state that we live in. And that's kind of our comfort zone. And if we try to change the state we're in, even a better one, our nervous system can actually view that as unfamiliar and you can also put unfamiliar equals unsafe. So sometimes if we change too quickly or we don't create the pack, the, the support, like Christine was mentioning, we have a lot of supports in a lot of our clinics because maybe the herbs or the diet change you make is going to turn your nervous system into a, a state where it's unfamiliar. It's actually getting better, but then you kind of go backwards again and that's actually your body on your side trying to protect you. So it's about sometimes going slower and sometimes working with your practitioner to find a different modality. Because you could put any modality in DNRS or Gupta in that question. So, you know, I'm not going to say one's better than the other, but it's a lot of times it's dosing. And as we talked last week, it's not just dosing, but it might be what order to do the dosing in. So maybe you need something else first. And Christine, what is, I know you, you do a lot of work here too, and I've been talking a lot. <laughs> Love to hear yeah. your feelings. Oh, yeah. No, I think you um, really covered a lot of wonderful things, Tom. I feel that um, some, like the safety idea is really important. And, you know, again, everybody is so unique in different parts of their journey, right? And so we know the majority of our patients when it's done at the right time. DNRS and the Gupta method can be really great tools because we have to address the limbic brain as part of the overall picture to return to health. I find that when those um, aren't working yet, it's a timing thing, and sometimes we need to go in with another intervention. EMDR is something that I often refer to. The only hard part with EMDR, there's only so many therapists, you know, in the country, and um, this is obviously an important recommendation for the right people and that it's a good fit. But EMDR, also um, Stephen Porges's work through the Bali Bagel Theory, I um, I don't know if you all know um, the company uh, Brain Harmony. Um, have you all know about Brain Harmony? It could be a resource um, I vetted, and of course I'd love for you guys to vet as well. But Carol, who runs the organization, she's an occupational therapist. And she has license in all 50 states. And she'll rent equipment so she, you don't have to purchase it. So either the Alpha Stim 
the um, focus unit or the sound and safe protocol. So that can be like another way in, you know, to the system um, to just make sure that, you know, that might be the front line to calm, you know, the limbic brain, help the, you know, vagus nerve, help with the general anxiety and feeling of safety with a really skilled one-on-one practitioner who can walk you through that. Because things happen, right? You know, things come up as you go through these healing modalities and I've really had a lot of success with her over the years as well. So that's just another tool to think about. But it's timing. DNRS and Gupta are incredible, but it's timing like with everything. And that's great resource. And there definitely is that timing component. And I find that so many people in our community, we're all go-getters. We all want to be better yesterday. (laughs) And so mistake I made over and over that kept running my into the brick wall was to try to do as much as I could do all at once. And I find that when we're really sensitive, we're getting anxiety with something. It's like you were saying, Tom, where you can get familiar with something mm-hmm. and then shifting into something different, even if it's better, feels unfamiliar and it feels scary. So we'll often even start with just one round of Gupta or five minutes of DNRS, or if we're using like brain tap, we'll use one minute of brain tap, literally 60 seconds and then you're super sensitive. We have, um, I just wanna let people know this resource, we're, we're getting it together so that there's a, a web page. We don't have the page up, but we have a safe and sound practitioner in-house who's a, oh, cool. taken the protocols and really adapted them for sensitive people so that you can start with that one minute, two minutes, because that's not how it was written. It was written to start with 30. But mm-hmm. So that, yeah, I love that, there, you know, we're talking about there's lots of ways. And Beth, even that, like um, my, myself and Akali, we created a meditation program specifically out of our own healing journeys, because this is before Gupta and DNRS were around. But like I tried, I knew I needed to calm my nervous system, but it was like I was everybody else outside of chronic illness land that I didn't know actually existed because I wasn't in, in connection with those people. I didn't have access to them. So it's like, if you just drop into any old thing too much, you know, so we made um, this meditation RX program very specifically so that people with chronic illness can walk through it at a chronic illness person's state and, and time. And it's really interesting what is okay for somebody without MCAS and mycotoxin illness, like say if they had high blood pressure or cancer may not work for us, like we're saying. So there's a lot of things. And I just want to echo that I tell people to do, I learned this from a Tai Chi practitioner, do about 70% of what you think you can do and then stop. And if you think you can do a minute, do about 47 seconds. <laughs> like, and when you think you can walk a mile, you walk three quarters of a mile, right? It's like always err on the side of just slightly less while still taking the action in that direction of healing. And I just remembered for those of you who have signed for the summit, if you haven't, today's the last day, do jump in and sign up because you get access to all these downloads and we have a number of nervous system downloads with lots of free modalities right there for you in those downloads. So that's your link, masscell360.com slash reverse. And um, if you miss some of the summit, you can still grab those recordings. They're really cheap, way less than the cost of a doctor's. Let's go to a question here, um, Christine. So this is from Noelle. Magdalena was great. Would milk thistle be a good liver support to help with hormones? Mm-hmm. Um, I love Magdalena's work. And milk thistle is a very traditional herb in the world of naturopathic medicine and botanical medicine. So it has a lot of good research on it, and it can be very uh, protective for, uh, for hepatocytes and could be really supportive. One of the key things I find, again, everyone needs to go at their own pace and uh, the right remedy for them. When we're thinking about a liver supplement, we're often not only thinking of the protection for the liver cell, but also the movement of bile through the bile ducts, through the gallbladder and into the intestines, because this is a huge part of our organs of our organs of elimination and our route of elimination. And many of those who have mycotoxin illness have it's kind of the chicken or the egg. They need their bile to be moving very well for the their elimination and to eliminate not only mycotoxins, but all the other things that our liver so beautifully does that 
you know, if this isn't, you know, working and if it's slowed with mycotoxin illness, people can get into that perpetual cycle of stagnation and illness. And so I really like to focus on liver and gallbladder supportive remedies um, and go slow, like with any um, mass cell protocol. I'm, I'm really pleasantly surprised, though, that things that I, I do a lot of energetic testing, so I will always have a thought and then check in with my patient, not only bioenergetically, but also starting low and slow with them, but some familiar kind of fun remedies to get the bio moving. I think we're good. I just yeah, didn't I was just to talking about bioflow, Tudka, uh, the right times of uh, types mm -hmm. of phosphatidylcholine. I also love bitter herbs, um, usually one at a time for mast cell patients, depending on, um, you know, gentian to dandelion root um, and so forth, artichoke and so forth. I use a lot of gemotherapy, which is plant stem cell remedies as well, that are really um, beautifully prepared and high vibration. But let's also think of like really good bioflow and bio support um, when you're picking out a remedy, because we only have so many remedies to choose from when you're creating a protocol for sensitive patients. So I just want to keep that in mind as well. So I'm whatever you all want to add to that, I, I'm super curious what you all use as well. I think that's great. There's a lot of estrogen dominance and it's not, we're, we're in a really high estrogen situation, not like a low estrogen situation, but a lot of estrogen. I mean, I just, my go-tos are DEM and calcium deglucurate, but not usually the very first supplements for people. Yes. You know, we get stabilized and then we can start working on some of that piece after we get some mass cell supports on board. But yeah, I think we've got similar approaches. Um, let's hit this one as a basic MCAS question, and uh, I'll take this one. Is MCAS hereditary? Two of my children have food sensitivities, connective tissue issues. So there are what are considered three types of mast cell activation syndrome. Most people have what is in the research literature called idiopathic, which means we don't know what causes it, which we, we do actually know what a lot of the triggers are. The number one that I see is mold toxicity and followed closely behind by tick-borne infections, chemical toxins trigger it, stress, trauma, traumas, all kinds of other chronic infections, viral or whatever, SIBO, CIFO, there's lots of things that, that trigger metals. Then there is a very rare genetic version. It's not very common, uh, but it is out there, and that's called clonal. C-L-O-N-A-L, clonal mast cell activation syndrome. Uh, and then there's one that's called secondary, and that's when it's triggered by another condition. But there's, even if it's hereditary, there's still triggers that make it worse. And that's what I want to bring us to is what are the triggers? And when I see this showing up in families, my first concern is what's going on environmentally. And my immediately go-to, let's look for mold toxins because that's at an epidemic level now and you don't have to see mold for it to be there. You rarely see it. Mm -hmm. um, what's going on chemical-wise? Is the outside the house being sprayed for insects? Uh, are we living near factories where there's a lot of pollution in the air? What's in the water? What are we getting for food? Things that we share across a family. And when I think of connective tissue issues like um, hypermobility, some of our biggest triggers of that. Um, so there, again, there's two forms. There's genetic, which is rare, but there's genetic EDS. And then there is the secondary. And in, in my own experience, that's most often triggered by mold toxins or Bartonella. And they'll eat away at the connective tissue faster than it can be built. The wonderful thing, and so I'll, I'll give you a little demonstration here, is that it can be reversed. I had significant EDS, and that's as far as my elbows will bend today. Mm -hmm. And I uh, used to, I'd have a lot of bowing. If I pulled my little finger back, that's as far as it'll go. It used to bend back almost that angle. Um, so that's a huge recovery. So I just wanna share that if the genetics, parts of these components of these things, there's a lot you can do to support, but if you get the root triggers addressed, it's amazing what can happen pop up another question here. So for those of you who came on later, um, we are answering questions from the Summit Talks. Anything that you that came up for you in the Summit Talks that you want to talk about, we're going to get to as many as we can here in our time. Obviously, we won't get to all of them. There's so many great questions. 
our team just decided before this, we're gonna start doing some Q and A's. Um, I mean, we're just gonna like take the rest of these questions and over time try to answer what we have remaining. So just stay tuned to our Facebook page and our emails that are gonna come out and you're, we're gonna try to make sure over time we get to your questions. Mm -hmm. We don't get to them today. Let's go to this one for Tom. Um, I like this from Neil. See, hi, Beth and company. Uh, big shout out and thanks for the Netherlands. Oh, yeah. Hi from the Netherlands. Thanks for your dedication. I saw your talk with Jill Carnahan. You spoke about sometimes unnecessary fear for antibiotics due to the sky high overall sensitivity. Are there any specific antibiotics you would in general call better bearable than others? For instance, in order to treat new infections of the gut, uh, parasites, so on. So Tom, can you jump on that one? Sure. Yeah. And um, welcome from the Netherlands and for everybody else, too. Um, so nice to have an international crew here tuning in. You know, it's, it's interesting. I always say, like, I think what you guys have both highlighted is where we start kind of depends on the, each individual's um, constitution, their presentation and what might their driving uh, cause be and, you know, the underlying, you know, things that are making them sick. And for some people, it might be starting with trauma. It could be starting with diet. I've heard a lot about like, if you have mold illness, you have to treat MCAS first. And if you have one or both of those, then you, ha you have to treat those before you address a Bartonella infection. But I've seen just as many people who maybe that order would work for them need have um, an untreated Lyme or Bartonella infection, or maybe a different infection where if you give them antibiotics that, or herbs that are appropriately directed at those particular infections, they actually get better quicker. And I've seen people where they have horrible diarrhea and horrible food sensitivities where you treat them with azithromycin for six months because they have evidence of exposure to Lyme disease and that's the only thing get them to take and they won't change anything else. And six months later, they have three food intolerances rather than 45. Mm -hmm. And I think what's happening is we found many of these infections and many of these environmental toxins can affect your liver, can affect your gut, including biopsying a lot of these infections directly from the gut wall. So I would say that I fix more people's guts with antibiotics than I do harm them. And I know I can harm them, so I'm trying not to in the process. So I think it's, you know, it, it's about figuring out not so much what treatment might be more bearable, but what treatment is most necessary for the individual patient and then how to organize the treatments that they need. And I don't know, I was trained as an osteopath, and this is before I knew that there were naturopaths um, out there because like that was the world I grew up in. It was like the chiropractor cracked your neck and you went to see the MD. And then I found out about osteopaths and they had this crazy idea from the mid 1800s of the body has the ability to self-regulate and self-heal. Mm -hmm. And if I, all I need to do is figure out the one or two things, at least, you know, earlier this century, the one or two things now it might be 20 things, but that your body was having a hard time with and catalyze that next step of healing and get out of the way, empowering your body to do its own healing work. And I view antibiotics and Gupta and herbs and all these, and even liver support the same way. What is the minimum your body needs to go to the next level of healing and how can we provide that in a way that supports it? So I think that um, most antibiotics actually are very well tolerated by the body if you prescribe them with that in mind. And I've also seen people just try to hammer people with more of sort of like the emergency room critical care unit approach to things, which is like, let the bazooka fly and then pick up the pieces later. That's not a really good approach for the folks that we're working with. So I think, again, it's like I would change the word antibiotic and I would put any treatment we do can be very variable or very non-variable depending upon the particular circumstances. That's great. Okay, Christine, this is from Molly. Uh, please talk about the relationship between MCAS and the thyroid, especially when T3 is low, but all the other markers, TSH, T4, reverse T3 are normal. And you might have to do a little background on that for people. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, um, the next part, just so you have, do you rec ever recommend just taking T3 to help stabilize the mass cells? Yeah, thank you. So great question, and it comes up with a lot of our patients. So not only are we looking at all the things we've talked about and the limbic brain and the lymphatics and the organs of elimination and, you know, all the things to support the 
um, you know, mast cell stabilization, but we look at the endocrine system, right? And part of our endocrine system is obviously our thyroid health. And one way to just conventionally through lab core requests or any common lab to look at the thyroid is through this panel that this uh, patient is uh, asking about. So TSH is all about our pituitary's communication with our thyroid. T4 is like the parent hormone that can gets converted into T3, which is the active form of T3 or reverse T3, which is actually an inactive form of T3, but it can um, create a functional hypothyroidism depending on the levels. But the, as far as Molly is, Molly or Miley, Molly is concerned, um, you know, only T3 is low. So we always want to take labs as one data point because we also want to take, you know, like you as a person and if you're having actually low thyroid symptoms. So if your T3 is low, you're most likely having some form of low thyroid, which can be uh, body temperature um, being a little colder, so you get chill more easily, your circulation could be off, um, you might be losing hair, your eyebrows might be thinning, you might be have constipation, fatigue, depression. It's a lot of the same symptoms that overlap any chronic illness, but this is worth mentioning. So um, when the T3 is low, we want to look at um, of course, stabilizing and supporting you if you're having those symptoms, but going deeper. So I often give people very low-dose uh, sustained release compound in T3 um, in this picture. Um, especially, I often see the reverse T3 being elevated. So this is um, this is good that your reverse T3 isn't elevated. So what we would do is to try to support you um, you know, clinically so you feel better um, and go low and slow. So I usually start with five micrograms and I can um, go higher depending on your um, response to that. And then we want to think about, okay, what helps the conversion of T4 into T3? So selenium is a trace uh, mineral that is really important uh, for thyroid conversion. We also look at your thyroid in connection with all the rest of your endocrine system. So your hypothalamus and your pituitary and your adrenals and your ovarian health. Um, often the adrenals and the thyroid are intimately interrelated. So if you're having low T3 in spite of all the other normal labs, we um, could think about, you know, adrenal um, support as well. And then um, there's this kind of receptor effect. So um, making sure that the T3 you have actually um, gets to the cells. And that's a lot about our work on cleaning up the extracellular matrix, lymphatics, and so forth. So um, that's a long-winded answer in saying yes, that I think T3 could be very, very helpful for you. But I want you to not only just think about it like T3 in isolation was my point, I want you to think of it as the big picture. I mean, it doesn't have to be forever, but definitely work with a provider that can give you compounded sustained release T3 who could like very um, slowly titrate, titrate that, uh, for you. And I do think it's it's worth considering and can be very helpful. I want to remind everybody that this, all of our Facebook lives are for informational educational purposes. Mm -hmm. Nothing's meant to diagnose, treat, cure any illness. It's not meant to be prescriptive for anyone. So it's just informational. And if you do see uh, links from our team with resources for you, if they're affiliate links, that may mean that MassL360 makes a very small commission, doesn't cost you any more, but it's how we support all our free resources. We do like our weekly Facebook Lives and blog posts and so on. So I just want to make sure I didn't forget to put those in there. So I'll take this one, Salicylates, and then we'll go to you, Tom. Um, Ashley's saying, I'm um, interested in overcoming salicylate intolerance is salicylate intolerance always tied in with oxalate issues? I get intense bladder pain from salicylates about six hours after I eat them. And calcium, the rest of it is calcium degluconate also hurts my bladder. So for those of you who aren't familiar with salicylate intolerance, this is a different kind of intolerance from histamine intolerance that you may be some, uh, familiar with. And salicylates are found in, uh, they're the polyphenols they're polyphenol compounds in a lot of colorful fruits and vegetables. So you think about things like berries, you can think about our colorful herbs, and particularly things like rosemary and basil are really high, thyme. Um, there's a lot of foods. Broccoli is quite high in salicylates. Uh, this I see a bit in mold toxicity. Now, not everybody with mold toxicity has salicylate issues, but if I see that, I'm really curious about what's going on with with mold. And the reason is because 
the major detox pathways for mold also clear salicylates. And the major detox pathways for mold, which is sulfur, also clears oxalates from our body. So these tend to go hand in hand. Um, actually, it's not always tied, but it often is because you need sulfur to process the salicylates, you need sulfur for oxalates. So if something's hogging up your sulfur, you end up with issues. Um, and then if you have mold, there's other factors that can play in with mold and oxalates. Um, there's good evidence that aspergillus, when it colonizes in our bodies, can produce oxalates in our bodies. And then leaky gut means we overabsorb it across the oxalates across the intestinal wall. So we have some of this in our blog posts about salicylates that you can find, Ashley, as something we do work a lot with. It, there are some great ways that you can um, improve that. We talked about that in the talk with Julie Matthews. You can go back and check that one, and you can check our blog post and find out more about that. And you may have to back up off the calcium deglucarate and get some of the earlier starting steps like the mast cell stabilizers on board and maybe some gentle binders. Make sure you're not exposed to mold and then maybe later you could move into that. So that, those are my thoughts there. Um, we did have a question about whether we were covering LDN and that is in um, Dr. Darren Ingle's talk. This came up, uh, we talked a little about pectisol last time, but let's talk about it um, in this context in terms of can um, pectisol see what mycotoxins does it bind does it bind lime as well yeah and um, again i think we all have so many good things to share about this and you know i've looked pectisol c is you know modified citrus pectin and it's such a great general binder and anti-inflammatory and i know dr elias talked a lot about the galactin 3 pathway and bringing down inflammation when I look at our specific mycotoxins binding protocols, it, there's a lot of research done on a lot of different products or, or substances, I should say, like cholestyramine, charcoal, even bentonite clay and saccharomyces for different uh, ones. I haven't seen a specific, I see lots of um, reference to pectisol C generally binding mycotoxins. I haven't seen one specific one or two where they're like, for sure it does. But being a you know essentially a type of fiber it's like we're we're able to bind things up in the gut and it has evidence that it even binds heavy metals so we're now like christine was saying if we get the bile moving and dumping toxins into the gut now once they're in the gut and we're binding them up now we can you know essentially through optimizing bowel movements we can get these toxins out of our body rather than doing that recycling that you were talking about Beth. so I find it's a very um, helpful adjunct uh, in mycotoxins treatments. And actually, for me, the first time I learned about using uh, binders was everybody's like, oh, use a bunch of cholestyramine and Lyme patients to basically, you know, and this is the allopathic way to do to have the bile that dump, you know, that's carrying all the toxins and get it out of your body. And, you know, I, I think as I learned more and our treatments became more elegant, we realized that a lot of the, I don't know, I refer to them as the death products, but <laughs> a lot of the leftovers after we're killing some of these infections and mobilizing them do get dropped from the liver through the bile into the gut. And we need, and if we bind them up, we have a greater chance of them getting fully excreted and out of our body rather than doing that recycling. So um, I think that uh, from my experience with Pectisol, has been that in addition to some of the more specific binders, it does a nice job in, in helping to get the, you know, these toxins out of the body. And from a Lyme perspective, it's none of these are binding Lyme disease specifically. It's not like you take a binder and it takes Lyme, but the toxins that are left over while we're cleaning up some of these infections, it can certainly help get them out. Mm -hmm. And I did see a study that was about specific, and I want to dig more into this, but specific about pectisol C and the DON is how we usually abbreviate it. It's not one we usually test for, but um, I have seen that one specifically. So I think we're going to see more coming out about that, which is cool. I think we find a lot of that, though. A lot of these things that we're using that are good are like multitaskers. You look at some of the new herbs that, are, like a lot of these antiparasitic herbs that Johns Hopkins studied, mm -hmm. and we find, oh, they're really good in Lyme disease and persisters. Oh, they're really great in Bartonella hensley and persisters. Oh, by the way, they treat 
the bees get done, Connie. And it's like, I think a lot of it is research dollars don't always go into this field, but it's patients and patient advocacy groups and clinicians who are working. And there are groups that are out there looking to study this more. So I think we'll find more and more, like the whole conversation about gliotoxins and Saccharomyces boulardii binding them, then the use of NAC in gliotoxins. And this wasn't talked about a couple of years back, you know, it's just, so there is always emerging stuff and anything, I mean, it's, it just goes back to me for the, like, you know, Beth and Christine, it's like all about the basics, sleep, hydration, the diet that is appropriate for you. And then regular bowel movements, you know, and being able to optimize your body's ability to get things out. And when Pectisol C and these other binders help you do your natural thing more effectively, especially if you have a bit of a leaky gut and while you're healing that gut wall and I really love it there, actually, because you're getting the anti-inflammatory both systemically, but in your gut wall as well, as it's helping you remove it. So it's like a multitasker. So, um, and one other thing I'll add about Pectisol C, I use it a lot in its powder form. We mix it up in water so that we can mix herbs in it. So they taste a lot better and it improves compliance dramatically. Mm-hmm. That's great too. Got a few minutes here. Let's squeeze in one more question. Um, Christine, this is, I hope I'm saying your name right. Um, I'm going to go with Mikey, mm-hmm. but I might have it wrong, but hopefully that right. Um, can you give us some insight on diagnosis and then what tests, blood is in parentheses, should be done to figure out whether one's suffering from mold toxicity? And maybe we all could share our approaches. Yeah, I thought that would be a good question. I'm sure we could all speak about this for one hour, you know, each about the this topic. But just um, I, I think this is important, right, because it's one thing to just have this idea that this might be something that you need to um, move forward with in your treatment approach. But how do you um, get doctors to understand this and practitioners and how do you start working up a diagnosis? So I'm reading this, Beth, correct me if I'm wrong about mold toxicity. Like how do we really navigate through and diagnose mold toxicity so we can start there? So and maybe mast cell. So okay. we could talk I'll about the mold and you can do the mast cell. We could tag team if that makes sense. And Tom, please just everything in between. Right. So um, there are no perfect tests, right? So we have to always approach this, that test as I mentioned before, are data points. They can be very validating. They can be very um, supportive of a clinical working diagnosis. And why I say that is I don't want us to get too hung up on tests that if they don't completely, everything is positive, that you shouldn't um, like neglect this approach because testing is getting so much better than when I just started this about 12 or 13 years ago, but it's still limited, right? And there's different reasons for that. But just to go into this, um, answering this question, I think about a few different approaches of when we're working up with somebody with mold toxicity. Number one is we have to identify if the home is a source of active exposure. I know that we have a lot of great people always talking about this, and this could be a whole topic. I think one of our sponsors, right, Beth, goes into, you know, this in great depth and that, you know, for the purposes of this conversation, let's just refer to them. But we want to make sure that you're not currently in active exposure, even though past exposures can set this up. So that that is number one. Number two, we want to think about, are you having a bioaccumulation of mycotoxins most often related to water damaged buildings? And what is your immune system doing with that information? So there's kind of these two aspects to what we're thinking about. So mycotoxin testing, There's a couple labs on the market. None of them are perfect, but they give us a picture. And there's this idea, too, of not only just taking a urine sample, but provoking it. Um, Provocation is a big um, technique that we use to demonstrate body burden. It's one thing to do just a random sample of urine, but if we actually support your liver in the um, in bile in the elimination of mycotoxins, we might get a more positive result. And there's different protocols that are um, available around that. So there's three tests, real-time labs, Great Plains and um, Vibrant America that um, have um, affordable um, mycotoxin testing compared to what it was, you know, even five, six years ago. So that's something that I think is really important. There's another aspect um, to this looking at your immune system. There's not only allergy and kind of also not beyond allergy, the mast cell piece that this can trigger, but also this kind of 
immune dysregulation, I still refer back to Shoemaker's um, protocols of how we look at the chronic inflammatory response to demonstrate, you know, what is going on with the immune system. Again, it's not perfect, but if you go to surviving mold, that is still a great resource for looking at immune dysregulation. And um, that's going to be looking at just different inflammatory markers that you can get in a um, a Quest or LabCorp panel. Um, often ones that I often use for my mold illness patients are um, looking at antidiuretic hormone and vasopressin. Um, that is very common in Lyme and biotoxin illness and foundation, right? If you're con- chronically dehydrated, it's very hard to heal. And then please just look at that lab. And then the other, you know, two things I guess I would say is the nasal microbiome can be often very affected, you know, by um, when you have um, mold toxicity. So your nasal passages can colonize not only with opportunistic dysbiotic bacteria, but also mold. Um, mold spores can basically become happy in your nasal mucosa, and then they can be producing um, mycotoxins. So even if you're after out of an active exposure, you can be colonized with mold, not only in your sinuses, but in your whole body, and that can also be contributing to your symptoms. So a lot of information there, but you want to test your home. You want to look at urine mycotoxins. You want to look at your immune system and how your it's responding potentially if there's a fingerprint of mycotoxin or um, or biotoxin illness, and then look at colonization, especially in your sinuses, but also in your gut, which also can be looked at through an oat test or GI map and so forth. So that's why this is still about mainstream, because it's not one marker, one medication, one diagnosis. It's a, it's a picture that we're looking at to help, you know, validate that this is a big part of making research. I just wanted to thank you so much. I wanted to touch base with Tom because I know you had said before we hopped on that I think you have a patient appointment. Do you do you want to answer this one or do you want to go? On a oh, person? sure. No, I actually have another summit meeting for, you know. Oh, if you have a meeting, yes. Okay. <laughs> It's pretty fun because, like, you know, that's what we like to do is make sure we get the, the information. I, th- I think that Dr. Christine's response is spot on. I mean, we, I, mean, I think the, a couple things to remember are um, we really need to know that a lot of the, these urine tests are relying on your body being able to optimally detoxify. So they, and even at the very best in optimal detoxification, they're not telling us your total body burden. They're just giving us a window into what's going on. Um, and there are some blood tests for mold toxicity that are out there, but again, same caveats. They're not the most, um, you know, we're figure out where everything fits. Um, you know, directly looking at mold in addition to sort of the biotoxin pathway that Christine talked about. It's the other, the thing that I really would love to point out whenever we have this conversation is one of the things that I really am, would love to see more research in is we look at pans and pandas, you know, that's sort of the infection or toxin triggered autoimmune brain inflammation leading to, you know, aberrant and crazy behavioral problems in, in kids, like often acute onset, as well as even in adults with changes in their psychiatric health and their executive functions. And we see that colon, um, recurrent infection in the throat or the nose can be a trigger where your, the, your sort of own immune cells congregate in the nose and ultimately go back up the nasal lymphatics into your brain. So the nerve of smell up into your brain and trigger an autoimmune reaction and inflammation leading to symptoms. But that, it's an important thing to remember is the same pathway that your immune cells travel up into your brain is the same pathway that the dirty water travels out of your brain. And in your nasal um, cavity, at least, the, you know, 20 to 30% of all your brain drainage detoxification happens through nasal passages. So if you have MCAS or mold illness um, or even just seasonal allergies that are leading to kind of um, constriction and poor flow out of your, you know, congestion in your nose. That's something that should be addressed because I often wonder if we have colonization with this mold spores or the mycotoxins uh, congregating, is this also a similar setup to this pans pandas phenomena that we know happens in strep? 
So it, whenever I have anybody who is asking about detoxifying this, it's a little off the topic of testing, but it's just remembering that the number one way to detoxify your brain is sleep so that that system working deep sleep and opening up your nose this dovetails a lot to MCAS and mycotoxins. So there's certainly different ways to improve the level, the amount of nitric oxide in your nose to help open up your nose and drain it. There's all the other things we've talked about. So just remember, it's kind of that, that balance point. And I, it doesn't really matter to me if you're in a moldy building or not, if you can't breathe. Now, granted, it, it does. It's kind of tongue in cheek. Yeah. I mean, if you're in a moldy building, let's work on it but and let's get out. But it, you can carry the moldy building with you in a Petri dish if you don't also understand the importance of your nose and its direct connection to the brain. And it's one of these really like, I know a bunch of us talk about it, but I think in the broader spectrum, everybody's looking for what's the best drainer, what's the best this, what's the best that. I'm like, open your nose, work on your posture and, you know, the hydration and sleep we've talked about. And I think whenever I hear about mold toxins, I just always have to throw that in because the, the route of making you sick is also the exact same route of helping you get better. That's really, a, a, there was another question earlier that focused on a similar thing is like, if I do, you know, some sometimes you have to do the steps that help you get better to be able to drain out the stuff that's getting in your way. So that would be my little bit uh, on top of that. Thank you. Well, I know we're going to say bye to you here and we're going to get ourselves wrapped up. Um, thank you so much for joining us. There were so many fantastic questions. I know we couldn't get to them all, but I hope that you got some pearls from what we did answer. If you're, you're looking for those summit recordings, you can find them at masscell360.com slash all access. Very, very affordable. It's less than $100. You can have the whole summit. Someone was asking about the transcripts. You get all of the videos. There's some extra bonus videos. There's some extra bonus PDFs. And you get all the transcripts. You can um, download them. There's not a printed book, but you can easily just take that to a FedEx Kinko's or something like that and have it printed. Mm -hmm. And if you'd like it printed or printed on your printer, um, you're welcome to do that. Um, another last one that came in that many people probably are wondering was, if you have limited funds, where do you start? Mm -hmm. I think the summit recordings are so affordable. We have a sale right now on our nervous system and mold course. They're 25% off. So you might want to take a look at those. Um, that's one of the, I think that's the biggest sale we've done. So 25% off. And if you go to masscell360.com slash courses, you're going to find, find our courses right there. Mm -hmm. And those will step you through how to do multi-talks, how to test yourself, what to take, how to get started, and also how to navigate your way through all of these nervous system steps. Any last words of wisdom for people while you're here with us? Thank you, Beth, and thank you for creating those courses. I think it's such a confusing space, even though when you know you're on the right path, there's so much information to digest. And I have a handful of my patients who have gone through your courses and just love your work. So thank you. Thank you for creating them. And no, I just um, want to honor you and of course Tom as well. This was an incredible summit to be part of and there was just so much intention and thought that laid out this really complicated information for the uh, the patient and the consumer. So I just want to applaud you and I'm so grateful to be part of this and I, I think this is just there's an epidemic um, of mast cell activation and histamine tolerance. And with the long COVID and COVID on the scene, this is even more and more important. So I just want to um, thank you again for putting all of this important information, because even if you don't think you have this, somebody might be affected uh, or yourself, given the um, environment that we're up against. So I think we all need to be educated. So um, and I loved how Kristen started us off with the story of hope, because even though uh, when you're in it um, and you don't ever think you're going to get out of it, you, you will. And uh, with amazing um, information, that's the that's the path out. So that's all that's all my heart to share. And thank you for, again, having me part of the Q&A today. I'm so grateful that you joined us and the energy brought. So do check in, check out Dr. Schaffner's work and her website as well. She's an incredible resource. So I just wanted you all to have resources. It's really mm -hmm. what I wanted because when I was so sick with all of this, I we didn't have a word for mast cell activation syndrome. Mm -hmm. It wasn't a diagnosis. 
Nobody knew what I was dealing with. Nobody knew about the mold toxicity. And it was really lonely. And then having to be putting all this together, even with either the background that I had, was a lot. It was overwhelming. And uh, we want to shortcut this. So it took me 20 years and over $350,000. It's kind of like half a million at this point. It took me over 75 practitioners to get well. And I don't want it to take that much for you all. So if we can shortcut this. This is what we're all here for. Make this so much faster for you. Most people can get better within two to five years, depending on how severe. Now, it still sounds like a long time, but it's a lot shorter than 20 Mm -hmm. and, um, for much less money and there's lots of resources so please check those out make use of them don't forget about the summit recordings and you can find those at masslaw360.com slash all access and um, i hope you join us on sunday and then stay around this part of our community by just liking our facebook page and you'll keep getting free resources every week and we'll continue to support one another so that we don't have to do this alone anymore Thank you so much. Um, I'll see you soon, Beth. Thank you and your team for an incredible Q&A. Thank so you. good to be with you. Bye, everybody. I hope you enjoyed my oops. I hope you enjoyed my conversation today with Beth O'Hara and Dr. Tom Markoff. And if you want to check out the summit and haven't joined it yet, please check out the link in the show notes. And please purchase the summit if that was within your budget. It's such a small fee for such a library of information that's going to help guide you to the resources and practitioners that you need to help heal if you're dealing with any of these issues um, in your own life or in your family's life or loved one. I hope you have a beautiful day.